I invite you to have your Bible open still at that chapter. We're going to work our way through it. And that may involve us reading some larger sections of it. Before I pray for ourselves this morning as we come to this part of our service where we hear God's word to us, <clears throat> I want to pray for Phil and for Bev. They leave us tomorrow for their trip going overseas. We hope it's a refreshing spiritually invigorating time for you and that you'll come back refreshed, enthused and ready to go again. Uh, if you weren't here last week then we've already had some families leave us. Uh, last week on I think Wednesday and another family went on Friday. Of, um, I won't get them all now in my brain but uh, the Wilsons went, Smiths went and the Sampsons went. Thank you. And the Walkers are going tomorrow. Many of you would have heard, and perhaps some of you still haven't, so I need to inform you that our sister, Sui Mei Ma, uh, went home to be with the Lord Jesus last Thursday, Thursday afternoon. Her funeral will be this coming Tuesday, Tuesday 11 o'clock here in the auditorium as a memorial service as we celebrate and give thanks for the life of Sui Mei, a strong believer in the Lord Jesus who has now entered into his presence and undoubtedly into a wonderful experience with other saints. She has simply gone before and one day as we follow the Lord Jesus we shall join her and other believers as well. So Tuesday, 11 o'clock here in the auditorium um, if you would like to come and celebrate with us give thanks for her life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being the recipients of your infallible word. And we pray this morning that as we look at this story of Jonathan and Saul, as they fight the Philistines, that you might open our eyes to understand the truths that you are communicating to us. And not simply, Lord, for us to understand, but for our lives to be impacted by it as well. That the words, the truths we embrace today might indeed impact us in the days ahead. That we might follow the Lord Jesus ever so closely. We thank you for Swimay. We thank you for our family, that they are Sean and Faray, that they are solid believers in you. We commit them to you, Lord, that they might experience certainly your peace, but also have great joy in the hope that we have because of Jesus. We thank you for likewise for Phil and for Bev and pray that you'll go before them, giving safety, joy, refreshment in all that they're about to experience on a holiday overseas. Bring them home along with the other Members of our church family, Lord, we pray. Bring them home safe. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you now, praying that you would speak to us by your Spirit, for Jesus' sake. As everyone said, <clears throat> I'm entitled these three chapters, Saul Sacrifices His Crown. The stories in chapters 13, 14 and indeed into 15 are an explanation of why Saul lost his kingship. In 10 and 11 and a bit of 12 even, Saul is presented in reasonably positive terms, that there are good qualities about him to make him the first king of Israel and that he was God's choice. God selected him not to fail, but God selected him to be obedient, to serve faithfully and to serve wholeheartedly. He did fail because he failed to do those things. He failed to obey God wholeheartedly as we saw last week. And just to revise quickly from last week, we saw that he initially delayed his obedience that he devalued, next slide Amelia, he devalued uh, God's word by not uh, doing exactly 
what God had instructed him to do. And he waited into the seventh day, but didn't wait until Samuel came, as he had been told. So that failure to be fully compliant to it led to pretty serious consequences for him. And then there is a very sad ending to the chapter where he simply fails to repent, to admit that he had done wrong. Rather, he comes up with all sorts of reasons and excuses. That continues to flow into the story this morning of what Saul got up to. The author of Hebrews, uh, well, maybe, but the author of 1 Samuel, likes to take characters and put them side by side to contrast them. So you get Eli and Samuel. You get them contrasted. Well, here this morning you're going to get Saul and his son Jonathan placed side by side, and particularly for us to learn lessons from, that there are things that Jonathan does which we are to learn from and in some senses emulate. And there are certainly things that Saul does which we are to learn from and to be warned against that we do not copy him. Uh, Saul is not set up on a pedestal for us to take pot shots at. He's a fellow believer who was flawed just like we are, but who failed. And so we need to take the warnings seriously. So the author of Samuel is contrasting for us both Samuel and Jonathan. The beginning of the chapter, in fact, you find Saul, the king, sitting under a tree, reflecting, contemplating, I'm not given any more details of that, but we are told that he has a priest with him. And it's perhaps significant in verse 3 that this priest, Ahijah, who has the ephod with him, the breastplate that where they would discern God's will with, with two stones that were hidden inside of it, that he is descended from the line of Eli. He comes through Phineas, one of the two bad sons that we read about way back in chapters 2 and 3 of Samuel. Um, and Phineas is his grandfather. And he's the nephew to Ichabod, uh, Phineas's wife, who gave birth and called the child Ichabod. The glory has departed. Saul is now tapped into and is consulting or taking advice from the disgraced line. He's listening to people who are out of step with God. And perhaps that's a bit of a clue to why things went wrong for him here. Well, there is Jonathan, who is not sitting under a tree, waiting... But verse 1, one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young man, his office bearer, his armor bearer, <clears throat> come on, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. <clears throat> Jonathan, his response to that initial, he had attacked a garrison and Saul had summoned the army of Israel and he got, you know, what, uh, several thousand people come and join him, 3,000. Um, and there was this overwhelming response from the Philistines. And it was frightening for them. And that's as far as we got last week. So now here is Jonathan sitting around, watching these Philistines have their own way, making raids into Israel wherever they liked and had removed all of the weapons from Israel. <clears throat> and Jonathan's had enough. So he gets it in his head. I'm going to do something about this. It was God's revealed will that Israel go into the land, the promised land, and that they conquer it and they remove all of the other nations from the land. That was God's revealed will. So Jonathan put two and two together and he said, well, I'm going to get on with the job. There's no clear revelation or direction from God, Jonathan, I want you to do this. He just observed that this is not to the honour of God. These people are doing things which are just not right. And my dad, the king, is sitting under a tree and he's not doing anything. He's moping, he's moaning, he's licking his wounds, having been rejected by God in chapter 13. 
and he doesn't seem to be going to do anything about it. In fact, Saul is going to become increasingly religious in this chapter. He's going to be very, very sensitive and it seems to be almost a, relig- a religiosity which is just outward, it's for show. And it doesn't seem to have penetrated to the heart to be transforming his life. as something he simply performed or did publicly but didn't alter or direct the motions of, of his heart or the choices that he was making. So Jonathan gets it in his head, I can't stand this anymore. And Jonathan, as a believer, says to his armour bearer, doesn't tell Dad, why not? Well, Dad was probably going to not grant permission. Sometimes it's easier to get forgiveness than to get permission, isn't it? Jonathan doesn't tell Dad because there is a growing self-centeredness in Dad, in Saul, where he is very concerned about his glory. So Jonathan just quietly slips out of the camp. Obviously the, the Israelite soldiers are demoralised, their guards on duty aren't doing a good job and Jonathan and his armour bearer are able to slip away undetected, unnoticed and off they go. And then their plan, we are told, emerges. Uh, verse 4 says to us, on each side of the path, Philistines are on that side, the Israelites are on this side and in between is this valley with a little creek running through it but on either side of the creek there are these two tall cliffs so significant, well known in that part of the world. They even have names in verse 4. One is, one is called Bozes, Bozes, the other is called Senna. One means shining and one means thorning. It would appear that they named them after some physical phenomenon, but the shining one was the one that faced south where it got the full blast of the sun upon it. And the other one was thorny in the shades and scrubby and difficult to climb up. Anyway, into this ravine, into this difficult terrain, Jonathan goes with his armour bearer. Verse 6 is worth underlining in your Bibles. Jonathan said to his armour bearer, come on, let's go over to the outpost of these uncircumcised fellows. He puts them in the right category. They are not followers of true and living God, they are unbelievers. They are intruders and invaders into the land that belongs to us. Notice his words, perhaps. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Is God going to turn up? Is God going to help? Well, maybe. Let's go fight anyway. If God turns up, well, great. Because Jonathan knows his Bible, he knows some of his history. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. God can use one. And there's two of us. Let's go. Let's find out what God wants to do. We all die someday. We can't determine when, where, how we will die but we can make a choice about how we will live and for Jonathan and for his armour bearer they're going to live for God they're going to live for the honour of God they're going to try and do something that will advance God's cause and kingdom perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf they're moving forward Jonathan in this chapter is going to be a person who demonstrates bold faith And in this instance, his faith, the conclusion he draws from the observation is one that causes him to step up, to do something for God. He sees the possibilities, not the barriers. I think, I don't know, but I reckon he probably knew some of his own Israelite history. Back in the book of Judges, in chapter 3, verse 31, at the end of the chapter, there's a story of this one verse on this guy called Shamgar and Shamgar was a man 
who single-handedly killed 600 Philistines with an Otsko, Shamgar. I bet you that story came flooding back to uh, Jonathan's mind as off he went. One guy with one stick with a point on the end of it can get rid of 600 Philistines. What can we do? He's got a sword, don't forget. There are two swords in Israel. Jonathan has a sword. Saul has a sword. Jonathan has his sword out, ready to use it. Saul has his sword tucked away, contemplating under a tree. One active for God, one waiting, contemplating, wondering and worrying, plotting and planning, whatever Saul was doing. But he was um, Jonathan who was going to step up and get going. There was no way that he was going to let God's honour be dragged in the mud any longer. I don't even remember Chamgay, probably remember Gideon as well and how Gideon, Gideon, God saved significant uh, armies against, destroyed them with a very few people, 300 soldiers. What have we learned from that? Well, if that's the case, then what Jonathan is doing is looking back through Bible history and seeing any parallel situations where God had acted in a certain way, we should do the same. When we read our Bible, go looking for, are there any parallel situations to the situation I am facing? What did God do then? What has God recorded to me to give me faith so that I can step up, that I can do something for God? William Carey's statement is applicable here. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. Don't spend all of your time sitting around waiting and contemplating. Get on with it. God has told us what we are to do. Let us be about and doing it. Well, off he goes with this hope. It's not obedience to the directive from God. The Lord hasn't said, Jonathan, I want you to go do this. It's more, it's recorded in such a way that he drew this conclusion that I'm going to have a go at this. I'm going to have a fight. I'm either going to fight him up there or I'm going to fight him down here. I don't know where. But then this idea occurs to him and he says, it's almost like he puts out a fleece, he puts out a sign. Jonathan says in verse 8, um, Come then we'll cross towards the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you and we'll stay where we are, down in the bottom of the valley, <clears throat> we won't go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will certainly climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. Maybe God's going to turn up and show us. Lord, if you're in this, let them say, come up to us. And that'll be an indication to us that you're in this and we're going to win. And sure enough, that's exactly what they say. The Philistines, verse 11 and following, they see the, Philist uh, the Israelites coming out of the holes, they make fun of them. The scaredy cats have turned up for a fight. There's a group of about 20 Philistines up on this outpost on top of this hill on one side. And they challenge them. Yeah, 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 you come up to us. You fight us on our territory. And surprisingly, Jonathan, hands and knees, crawls up one of the sides. Surprisingly, gets to the top, sword drawn and then starts thrashing. Whether it was confined spaces or whatever it was, God gave him courage as well as victory. Jonathan either knocks them to the ground, the armour bearer comes behind him as well, and he's finishing them off, verses 13 and 14. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armour bearer killed some 20 men in the area of about half an acre. God gave him success and victory. Faith stood up. Faith stepped out. Faith was triumphant. God is the one who was acting. God was working through Jonathan who said, Lord, I'm available. 
I'm going to do something. If I fail, I fail. But I'm going to go down trying. We need, with the faith that we have, to look to our great God, to read his word and to follow his purposes, his principles. We certainly, like Jonathan, likewise, to be looking out and observing, what is God doing? In fact, that's what our mission statement says, that we are to work with God, transforming people into passionate followers of the Lord Jesus, to work with God. God is on the business and about the business of changing lives, of helping marriages, of helping parents with kids, of helping people who are lost in sin, who are depressed, who are in spiritual darkness, and God wants to find them and bring them into the light. So as we go into the days of this week, keep your eyes open. Look to where God is at work and join God in what he is doing. Do something for God. Well, his faith triumphs and I write up on the screen. In fact, it was God who triumphed. Verse 23 tells us to the chagrin of Saul. So the Lord rescued Israel that day. The Lord rescued. God was at work. Verse 15 tells us that once Jonathan had simply killed these 20 men in this little outpost. Don't forget there are at least 6,000 and maybe up to 30,000 and maybe even more than that army, Philistine in the Philistine army. 20 men have been killed and verse 15 says, then panic struck the whole army. They were scared. 20 people get killed in a little outpost and they're running scared in the camp, in the field, in the outposts and in the raiding party. Suddenly, The tide has turned. Their attitude has changed. Suddenly they are now fearful. Well, who could do that except God? God did it. God transformed their own hearts into one of fear, into one of defeat. And then, of course, God backs it up by sending an earthquake. Two things happen. There is this panic that sets in and then that is taken to another level with this very frightening earthquake. And the Philistines turn on each other. Saul, under his tree, watching what's going on on the lookouts, suddenly observed the army is running, they're deserting, they're starting to melt away. What's going on? And Saul says, check the roll. Let's have a parade. Everybody fall in. Let's find out who's missing. Who's doing this? Who's going to get the credit? Maybe behind his question. They mark the roll. They find out that his son Jonathan and his armour bearer have gone missing. There is a sense in which Saul wants to go join them immediately, but the religiosity thing kicks in. The king is supposed to consult with God before he goes into battle, so that's exactly what Saul does. He calls for the priest, Ahijah. It says in verse 18, there's a textual issue. It says, bring the ark of God. Some versions will say bring the ephod. Um, While Saul was talking to the priest, trying to find out what does God want me to do, The tumult down in the Philistine camp just gets worse and worse. It gets louder and louder. And then Saul says to the priest, oh, forget it, take your hand out, don't worry about it. And then he goes, joins it. Once again, Saul is responding to circumstances and not doing exactly what he ought to be doing, but doing it initially for the show, outwardly seeking God, but not sincerely, doesn't wait for the answer. And then he just joins in. Verse 20, Saul and all of his men assembled, they went into the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion. Israel only had two swords, but God was more than capable of taking the Philistine swords and turning them against each other. 
God can find weapons from anywhere he likes. God can achieve his purposes in the most unusual of circumstances. God is God. So his faith, Jonathan's faith, his actions, in fact, now rallies others, stimulated, motivated others. They saw what God did through him and they wanted to join in as well. Saul partly delays but eventually does join in. Here are two truths for us. Circumstances, outward circumstances, do not determine outcomes when God is involved. Circumstances do not determine outcomes when God is involved. God can change outward circumstances miraculously, suddenly. He can also leave them the way they are, suddenly, uh, slowly, for his own purposes. 1 Corinthians 16.9 talks about how uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, is saying, I think he's in Ephesus, He says, God has opened a great door for ministry, but there are many who oppose it. Outward circumstances do not determine outcomes when God is involved. What are the circumstances of your life? Don't look at the circumstances. Lift your eyes to God, saying, God, work in my life. Work in these circumstances. Achieve your will and your purposes. It may be that he'll alter them, that he'll lift them, that he'll change them. It may be that he'll leave them the same but strengthen you in the process. He is God and he works in different ways and different people at different times. We, like Jonathan, secondly, are to offer ourselves to God for his service. We should understand what God's will is through the Bible, his general, all-encompassing will to reach lost people, to bring honour and glory to Jesus, to extend the kingdom of Jesus. That's what God's on about. We need to understand God's will and then look for the opportunities. When we see those opportunities, We're going to step forward into action. Asking God for help. Not delaying. Not waiting for God to say, now, yes, go. We should live our life under the Lord's direction. But I think sometimes we, like Saul, can use our religiosity for an excuse to delay action. We need to rely much more fully on God's grace and his power. 14 verse 6. Jonathan's statement. It may be that God will work for us. Nothing can hinder the Lord. Who cares what happens to us? God's will, God's mission, God's birth. That's what's to be done. Well, that's Jonathan. We're to learn by him in terms of his bold faith and his endeavours to bring honour to the Lord whilst relying on God. Doing his best, but not independently of God, but doing his best, relying on God. If you have a look at verses 23 and 24, these verses sort of divide the chapter. So the Lord rescued Israel that day. It's referring to Jonathan. God worked through him. Verse 24, Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. The Lord rescued Israel that day through Jonathan and his faith and stepping out and complying with God's will. Israel, the men of Israel were distressed that day because of Saul's involvement, because of his choices, because he does some foolish things in this chapter. He makes some bad decisions and this is the first of them. I don't know what motivated him to say, but he said to the soldiers, had them take an oath, no one is to eat anything until all the enemy have been conquered best possible life and not likely 
But the best way you can put this is that Saul is concerned that the soldiers will be distracted by, as they go into the fight, the soldiers will be leaving possessions, both food but also valuables. And the soldiers could be distracted from the task of finishing them off and they could be more interested in the plunder than getting on with the job. Perhaps that's what Saul was maybe saying. I don't want you eating anything or taking anything, I want you to finish the job. That's the best light you can put on it, but I don't think it's likely. I think what's far more likely is that Saul is motivated by, here is my chance, here is my victory, these are my enemies, I will get great honour and great glory. Nobody eat anything. It was a dumb decision. One of the things soldiers need, isn't it, when they're chasing, and these guys are on foot and they're going to run about 20 miles, they're going to need sustenance. You ever walk 20 miles? I have. At the end of the 20 miles, you're completely knackered. You have to eat something, you have to drink something. You're completely spent. Well, I was. And here are these guys involved in a fight, expending energy of chasing and fighting. And Saul is saying to them, no eating. It was a foolish thing to say. And so we see Saul uh, firstly this, Again, pretending to be religious, fasting is a religious discipline, a spiritual discipline. And yet, maybe he's trying to manipulate God, I don't know what's going on in his mind, but later on if you look down to verses 29 and 30, you'll have Jonathan's evaluation of this. Jonathan didn't hear it. The soldiers chase, but because their energy levels are dropping, the Philistines are getting away. And Jonathan comes into the forest, And Jonathan's perspective is, look what God has provided for us. All of this nourishing energy food, the honey is dripping, falling out of the honeycomb. And he takes his spear and he puts the end of it in and he takes a bit off that and he has it. And the Bible says that his eyes brightened. He was refreshed. He was energized immediately. And then someone informs him and says, your dad, the king, commanded us not to eat. And there was a curse as anyone who eats food today. That's why the men are faint. Jonathan's response, public statement about his dad, his father, the king. Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for the country. That was a dumb thing to say. He's made trouble for us. That word trouble is exactly the same word which is used back when Achan, you know the story of Achan and Joshua? Went into the city of Jericho when the city was under a total ban, stole some things. He made trouble for Israel. Same word so that Israel now would be defeated in their very next battle. That one man's sin, one man's decision had removed the blessing of God from the nation of Israel. That's what Saul did. His one decision had caused trouble for Israel. Jonathan says, verse 29, See how my eyes have been brightened when I taste a little of the honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Saul's foolish oath, which hindered them. The consequences also of his decision is that at the end of that day, when the Philistines had gone their 20 miles or however far it is, and they were exhausted, verse 31. Then verse 32, they started grabbing the gold, the plunder, the sheep, the cattle, the animals. They're starving. And they broke Jewish law, the Mosaic law, They killed the animals and they started eating the animals that had blood still in them. Saul's response, a religious thing, a correct thing that he should have done, 
but it was his prior decision which had led to the men being so desperate. It doesn't excuse it, but it helps us understand it. He brings in a large stone into the camp. They slaughter the animals there appropriately. The blood can drain out so that then they can eat and be refreshed. Saul says to them in verse uh, 34, Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. Here is the king pretending to be concerned about God's will, God's word, what God wants. He's half-hearted there. So everyone did that. They brought their rocks and night and slaughtered it. Verse 35, Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. That was the first time he did that. Again, you see, acting to be religious. Saul then comes up with a bright idea. <clears throat> How about, instead of resting tonight, how about we continue chasing? Once you finish eating, let's continue the chase. Let's chase the Philistines all night and finish the whole battle. It's not a great idea. And the priest says to him, maybe we should ask God what he thinks. So the priest, Ahijah, brings the ephod with these mysterious stones, which are called the Urim and the Thummim. And we don't know how they work. There are different ideas. Different scholars have come up with different things one color, one black one white two different colours maybe different letters on it maybe you took them out and you rolled them and if they both turned up the same colour it was a yes they both turned up in the other colour it was a no with opposite colours it's neutral and we don't know how it worked all we know is they used these two stones to determine God's will so Saul's question was Lord should we chase the Philistines or not and there's no answer somehow there is a neutral response and Saul then publicly is exposed as God's not talking to him. And without doing what he should have done, which I'll come to in a moment, he then seeks to again act religiously. There's a reason why God is not speaking. Someone has sinned. Jonathan, you stand with me and all the other leaders, uh, officers of the army, you stand over there. It's clearly one of you guys has done something. And somehow then, out of the Urim and Jonathan and Saul are taken. They're innocent. And Saul says, well, do it again and let's see, cast lots and see if it's Jonathan or if it's me. They cast lots and it's Jonathan who's taken. And then Saul says, confess my son, what have you done? He says, well, I dipped my stick, my spear into a bit of honey and I ate it. You said no for no one to eat. Then there is this foolish statement from Saul. Jonathan must die. Jonathan was prepared to die. Saul says, verse 44, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. Foolish state. The men of Israel who had been silent up until this point, they finally step forward and they say, Jonathan is the hero today. Jonathan is the one that God has used today. Jonathan is the one God has blessed Israel through today. He's not going to die. What Saul should have done is that he should have seen himself in the light of all of these circumstances and drawn the conclusion that he has done wrong, that he has acted foolishly, that it was him making the decision to have the oath which led to Israel not having the energy to complete the task. Saul is a bit like Judas. God works with flawed people. Saul is flawed, so are we. But flawed people, flawed godly people when caught out, when making a mistake, when getting it wrong 
we should humble ourselves, we should admit our sin, we should repent of it, and we should seek God's face for this. Peter and Judas, two disciples of the Lord Jesus, both flawed characters, both betrayed Jesus on this night when he was arrested. Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him. The difference between Judas and Peter is the difference between Saul and Jonathan. Saul, like Judas, doesn't humble himself, doesn't repent, doesn't seek God's face, doesn't seek mercy, but seeks rather to justify himself and to blame others for the things that are going on. Peter was a man who humbled himself. David, who would follow Saul, was a man who sinned badly, but who sought God's faith, repented, confessed. That poor child. Or should I say that poor parent? David says, Psalm 51, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. That's the heart of a godly person. Flawed, fallen, we stumble. But we must always return to the foot of the cross, confessing and asking God to forgive us. This passage certainly points us in that direction, that we, unlike Saul, need like David to come before God, to humble ourselves and to repent. To know God, that was certainly David's desire. Psalm 25 verse 4 is an invitation for us, like Jonathan in this chapter. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Saviour. My hope is in you all day long. Okay, where did we get up to? Um, Outward circumstances do not determine outcomes in this life when God is involved. We need, like Jonathan, to offer ourselves to God for his service and who knows, God may in fact take us and use us to achieve the mission of what he's working on in the world. We are to learn from Saul not to pretend to be religious, not to pretend to be listening to God, but rather to be genuine in doing it. And that when things go wrong, we are to seek God and to ask for his mercy, asking for him to enable us to know him better. We can't choose how we will die, but we can, like Jonathan, choose how we will live. And there are two choices. We can choose to live under God's rule with him as our king and as our Lord, and us seeking to obey him to the best of our ability, serving him wholeheartedly. Or we can choose to live where we are king, where we make the shots, where we make the decisions, where we direct our life and principle. They are the choices that we have every day. And as followers of the Lord Jesus, help us, we ought to follow the example in this chapter of Jonathan. Battles are inevitable victories are. God does not guarantee that we will always be victorious. Sometimes the enemy or the circumstances can appear much stronger than we are. But when we face the enemy, when we face our difficulties, when the circumstances are against us, when life is overwhelming, you have a choice of how you will live. 
choose to live under God's rule, that he is sovereign, that he knows this and my desire is simply to be obedient and compliant to him. May he work through me and in me and around me. I'm going to join him in what I think he's doing, regardless of the consequences. Or I'm going to look at the circumstances, I'm going to be overwhelmed by and I'm going to be have a pity party and it's going to be woe is me and why is life so hard? Because I'm defining relying on myself. So, brothers and sisters, this week we're going to look to God or to your own strength. Observe what God is doing in your circumstances in your life around you and step up, step out, take a risk. Dare to be strong for God this week and see what God does through you. Let's pray. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades but your word endures forever. Help us like Jonathan to be refreshed and nourished by the truths of your word as we go about the task of living our lives under your will, under your direction. Open our eyes to see opportunities, not barriers. Increase our faith that we believe in a great and powerful God. Nothing can hinder you. You can work by many, you can work with few. Lord, we invite you and desire for you to work in us, through us and into our circumstances and life situations. We pray that you would be pleased to do that this week to the honour and glory of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Pastor Darrell.